Hey folks, this is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy our content, you can support us on Venmo and Patreon, where we have a series of unreleased episodes called The Prologues, as well as extended clips from our interview series, if you want to go check those out. Today, we're talking with Mark Wardle, the former head ranger on the Slindon Estate. We talk a bit about what it means to rewild the landscape and the role of humans in that process, as well as what that means for climate change and the future of humanity. We have a really great conversation where we talk about some really complex stuff, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. As always, if you enjoy it, please give us a review on iTunes. So let's jump right in. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for taking some time to uh, talk a little bit about your work. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do? I'm told I'm an ecologist. Um, I didn't train as that. I, I, I trained in countryside management and rural resource management. There's a mouthful for you. Um, I've been in the game in the UK countryside over 30 plus years now. In fact, nearly 35, I think, too hard about it. Um, and during that time, I was lucky enough to be pretty much in one place um, or one area to see changes take place consistently as a result of my impact, but also natural impacts and other man-made impacts too. And after 25 plus years of managing the same state, um, a few things took place that just made me decide it was time to set myself up and go solo and be my own boss instead of have one that wasn't happy with me. <laughs> yeah, so could you talk a little bit about those changes that you did see? Well, I'm lucky. I'm lucky because in the southeast of the UK and the south of the UK in 1987, one night in October, there was an immense storm, immense by our standards at least, perhaps not by stateside or other climates. But we had over 100 mile an hour winds. Uh, luckily, it was, it was at night and it was a normal sort of autumn. Um, I say normal because we're talking 30 plus years ago. So there's still a bit of leaf on the tree. Um, and trees were blown down left, right and centre all over the place, absolutely everywhere, all shapes and sizes, chaos for some time. Some people took a week to clear roads to get out of their properties. Um, we didn't know how to deal with such a thing. And a lot of the wood was cleared up very, very quickly, um, far too much in some respects. Um, but what I saw was nature's response to a natural process that being wind. And what I was lucky enough to see, as well as the catastrophic shock of that kind of natural impact, is the natural regeneration that's taken place since, that, and, and, and habitats have modified and, and nature's adapted without our impact. It's got on with it quite happily. I imagine, I, I read one of the articles about that storm, and uh, there was a lot of discussion about the the rebirth of the... the um, I guess the woodlands floor and a lot of the species that, you know, it reminded me a lot of like the coppicing process of, you know, you, you have this dense thicket essentially, and then you go through, uh, see, you know, whatever it is, five, 10 years, clear a section. And then all this life comes back from the earth that has otherwise, you, you wouldn't think that that seed bank or those rhizomes are still alive and they just shoot back up. Uh, and then, this seems kind of like the natural version of that. 
Yeah, it is. It, it, it was. You're absolutely right on a on a on a large scale. Um, but also, the advantage of it being natural was that nothing was the same. <laughs> so um, some veterans withstood it. Others lost their tops. Others lost limbs. Others were scraped down the side of by other falling trees that opened up decay, rock pockets, wonderful habitat opportunities. Um, and it's still there now, the impact of it, you can still see it today to this day. I mean, I, I could take you to a woodland where there are still root plates, tree root plates that where they fell over and, and, the, and the root plates are still over your head high. Um, you know, that's, there's, there's as much in the ground as there is up above the ground. And that's just the point where it's severed, obviously. But even now, 30 plus years later, those tombstones are still there, um, albeit disappearing under the new life that happened. Uh, bramble, scrub, old man's beard, uh, wisteria, not uh, clematis, I mean, sorry. Um, uh, young silver birch, um, now probably about ready to fall over to make room for the oak trees that will also be in there. But we rushed out and planted. We rushed out and planted, and I have been regretting that ever since in some respects that I, I didn't challenge it then as a young 17 year old anarchic conservationist I just went out and planted the trees like I was told to without thinking about all the plastic that I was distributing around the countryside in the name of tree protection <laughs> yeah that's true uh, so I'm assuming you were planting oaks uh there was a mix yeah oak um what else we were on chalk here um in this part of the world or, or clay and chalk anyway and then you've only got to go a little bit further north it's sandy so planting type species will depend on soil type um but yeah oak beech uh don't think much ash was planted because that sort of planted itself quite well um softwoods were planted too but generally it was a hardwood mix of oak beech um sometimes alder uh, not enough warm beef. Fairly, fairly boring mix, really. Sure. Uh, so, in retrospect, what, what about those decisions? Do you now feel that you would have done differently with the knowledge you have today? That's a lot more of it to its own devices. Uh, whilst managing the predators, either by persecution. Or, or protection, um, and the predators largely, funnily enough, are um, uh, grazing deer and squirrels, um, all of which have been introduced by us. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't realize that squirrels were a nuisance species over there that were an invasive until I uh... yeah damn right they are. <laughs> um, it's so funny because they're so like ubiquitous here. Uh, yeah, well, you can have them back. Come and get them. <laughs> I don't want them back, but you know, <laughs> they are bloody ubiquitous here as well. I mean, they're very much a, 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 a commonplace scene in, in in suburban parks and gardens. People are constantly fighting them off their bird feeders because this country has a fetish for feeding birds instead of providing habitat, and um, they have caused untold damage to all the timber that was planted, but also a lot of natural regeneration too. And God bless the Victorians. I think it was four or five times they had to try to introduce them before they were successful. Jesus. I understand what they were doing wrong. Yeah, that's so <laughs> funny. Yes, they strip bark, uh, ring bark. I mean, they create habitat opportunities, but from a 
commercial forestry perspective or a veteran tree manager's perspective, you know, I don't want my 240-year-old maiden beech tree being ripped to pieces by some long <laughs> tree rat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, that That's so funny. Uh, so let, I've got to ask because... I think here, at least in the United States, we have a very skewed understanding of what forestry and forests and woodlands are in the UK. And from my perspective, I primarily envision it as like managed woodlands, meaning uh, existing and previously managed uh, coppicing fields and th- or coppicing forests and things like that. Is is that accurate, or is it prime? Is ha- are there areas that are still kind of left to rewild or whatever you want to call it? Ooh. There are areas returning to wild. Um, I've been directly first-hand involved with that myself as to build on what we were talking about with natural regeneration. And you've got to start, you've got to start with the, the meaning of the word forest and the context of the nation and its interpretation of it. And forest here does not mean high wood continuous cover forestry with no glades or, or rides or access otherwise. Um, it's it, the, the, the English, the, the, the British word forest comes from times when there was much more uh, what we might describe as wildwood and, and trees were probably harvested for falling over rather than positively cut down. Um, and grazing was more extensive there weren't the unnatural predators uh, and your forest in this country was a much more open landscape than even what most people consider to be a forest in this country they'll go to a, a silver cultural situation you know four-story high larch or, or, or um Sitka spruce or Norway or something like that and, and, and call that a forest but they won't they won't actually appreciate the, the actual meaning of the word that they're they're um they're, they're using so um here forestry is per se is quite intensive to be productive and in this country no piece of land has ever been untouched there is nowhere here that we haven't been buggered up before um it's the nature of being on a relatively small island and there are some areas upland as well as lowland that are now being given back to nature through what is being termed as rewilding but it's still in the managed way that we will um, deliver our interpretation of it. And um, to actually get people to really seriously do nothing is very, very difficult. And it's not something I've, well, apparently it is something I've got a problem with, but but not when it comes to countryside management and habitat management and habitat progression and, and reversing the damage that we've done most intensively in the last since the industrial revolution really until that point and the invention of agrochemicals and, and intensification and the positive sides of productivity after the world wars that, 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 that come around you know the, the, the countryside in the united kingdom was doing fine forestry was doing fine 
but to actually get people to give up productive agricultural land is something that people really, really struggle with. And some great estates have done it and on, on an estate scale, 1400 hectare, sort of size, they're putting a ring fence around the whole thing and rewilding their island. <laughs> well, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> but it's it and it, it works. It it's uh, it's it's the the kind of um, there's grazers in there. There's 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 cattle in there. There's there's control over the um, deer management. Uh, and in fact, there's red deer in there as well, which are the native UK species. And um, to actually have the funds i suppose to be able to do that to walk away to you know to walk away from sustainable farm you know sorry to walk away from productive agricultural land and let it go feral is not something that comes to the average british landowner very very easily um so and those are people that are connected with the land not people that are misconstruing the conception of the, and perception of forest so with rewilding there's still very little actual letting go and seeing what happens. And to give you an example, with a project that I was involved with where um, about 650 acres of productive farmland work were turned over to, well, rewilding, if you like, wood pasture, coppiced um, woodland, um, natural, naturally regenerated woodland, but also planted woodland. Out of that 600 and so acre, acres, um, only 16 were fenced off completely from everything to see what happened. And if I took you there now, you wouldn't be able to see the back of this room for regeneration that's got away on its own. And yes, your oak trees are in there, but all sorts of other stuff as well. Um, what did I see in there? Something, something obscure like a monkey puzzle, which some joker must have taken all the way up there to stick in to see if we noticed. But yeah, even then, to a, to a conservation organisation, letting go of 600 acres, putting a fence around it and walking away from it was something it struggled with. So partly because of needing public engagement for it, but also because it just doesn't feel right to people to actually say, let's do nothing and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, we think about it from the perspective of like, in our current eco ecological condition, there's so many invasives and concerns about uh, creating the habitats for successful native species. And then you can mix in climate change into how uh, native species are changing their native uh, locations to try to survive climate change. Um, there's a very weird understanding of what it means to, I guess, uh, rewild the landscape or to try to bring it back to some kind of former state that is, in a lot of ways, arbitrary. The the you know, okay, what what is the natural ecological condition of this site? Well, a thousand years ago, five hundred years ago, or ten thousand years ago, because those are going to be totally different. Where are you going to put your finger exactly? Yeah. Yes, and if it's any of those, you'll be better off than a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago. Uh, yeah, you're 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 uh, you're, <laughs> you're taking me somewhere. I was trying to avoid going. But actually, yeah, here we. Here, <laughs> That's here, what I want to well do. <laughs> <laughs> here, here we go. Well, at, at the moment in this country, we are um, we're re we've reintroduced white-tailed sea eagles, which we wiped out. 
And we are trying to reintroduce beavers, which keep dying um, and also have got out, um, which isn't what we want because chaos might happen if we can't manage where we want the beavers. What, I mean, what happens when the beavers become a problem? <laughs> what happens when they start what happens when the white-tailed seals become a perception, a perceived problem again? Because I haven't spent all my year trying to get 195% success out of one ewe, two lambs per ewe, so that I can watch that white-tailed so-and-so fly off with it. For <laughs> And and that's why they were that's what they were done for. And, and yet and yet on the other hand, this links directly to where we started. We have done nothing about eradicating the grey squirrel. We are doing very little about effective deer management. We are doing nothing about the encroachment of bracken. Very little about the encroachment of bracken onto heathland habitats, onto moorlands. We're doing lip service again it's just uh, we're here we are banging in resources to put back stuff that we've already wiped out and yet we're doing comparatively little about undoing the damage elsewhere that we've done by moving the stuff around yeah yeah we um so around my part in new england uh japanese knotweed is a huge issue uh, yeah that's and, it here, here too yeah and uh, yeah. so we our town we bring our um waste to the dump and uh, I, I'm sure you know Japanese knotweed. You can't just throw it anywhere; it'll just grow. <laughs> no. So I yeah. asked them. I was like, I, "I, where do you want me to put this?" And the guy looked at me like, "What do you mean? Where do I want you to put it? Put it with the compost." And I was like, "That's a terrible idea." <laughs> and um, it, like that just speaks to the fact that you know everyone might know about these like very popular like uh, reintroductions, and we're not doing anything about these very grave problems that. And you know you could make the argument that it's. I know, Japanese knotweed is just um, taking advantage of a weak ecosystem, which is a whole other, you know, discussion to have. But it, it, you know, it speaks to the fact that our priorities are on the uh, sexy things, like getting new species or returning species, bringing back this time yeah. of um, ecological opulence or whatever you know they, mm. it 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 represents. I, this is kind of driving me in a different way than I want to talk. Uh, because I know you've got this really interesting background and a lot of our lis the listeners are a pretty good mix across the globe, but mostly American. Uh, and coppicing is like one of those things that's a, a big novelty here. If you, if you get deep into the deep enough into the rabbit hole of ecology, you end up at coppicing at some point, but you, you, it's all online. You can't find somebody that does it really around here. Um, I have a couple old willows that I've been coppicing, but that's like it's me hacking up a tree with a chainsaw and it just refuses to die. Uh, <laughs> That's coppicing. Yeah. So um, I, I'm interested from your perspective about the role of coppicing and um, I guess hum humans in nature and what role that has in that rewilding of their, of your local ecology, especially over there where there's that big historical context for it. Having enough, space to rewild properly is always going to be an issue because if you wanted to do that then you'd let stuff fall over and with old age um, and coppice itself naturally um, i think that's where it comes from um, you often get rootstock regeneration when the top of the tree is gone um, it's fallen over um, sometimes um, i think i've seen an, a, 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 an oak that possibly blew over in napoleon's time 
and, and, and all the side dormant bud growth is now forming trees that in themselves are quite respectful, but the whole thing is 20 metres long where the tree was that size when Jesus. it fell over all those years ago. And um, I guess we discovered our ability to do it when we were first slashing and burning. And um, it may also have been from a better observational relationship with our landscape that we just knew that that was the right thing to do. Um, and that if you did it at the right time and to the right species, you could get different responses um, for different needs. And so um, we might copy, uh, again, it's all about productivity. We're going back to that commercial forestry again. It's just commercial forestry in a much more sustainable way that is more directly related to our personal needs, but also without taking too much out of the habitat or environment that we're in. And so coppicing is regeneration in, 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 that, in that sense. And, and so uh, as rewilding goes, it, it couples hand in hand with coppicing. It, 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 but it, it also needs to fit in the wider stuff that sits more with the word forest because of, I've been thinking about this, because of the other aspect of UK woodland management, which is over and above coppicing, is wood pasture. And that's above grazing head height coppicing. It's just the same, but because it's up there and it's got a single stem before it goes... Yeah, so you're talking about pollarding at that point. It's pollarding, yeah. exactly that, yes. And that gets you pastoral opportunity as well as a timber crop. And that's probably as important, if not more important, um, than coppicing. And if you put that into the forest context and the rewilding context, pollarding is just a tree's response to when it's been crowned. I mentioned that in the 87 storm, a lot of trees lost half the top. They're some of the most interesting trees in the woodland now, if, 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 you know, if they survive. Um, so coppicing was, if you like, industrial intensification um, at its time to get the best out of the wood from a productivity sense. And we'd have been... Um, we'd have been firing kilns on the stuff to start with. So if you get your single stem and you cut it and you get multiple stem regrowth, lots more surface area. So when your furnace is burning, there's much more um, uh, heat going on because there's much more combustion going on because you've got a greater surface area in the kiln itself. And stuff like hornbeam or oak with its calories would be coppice for that. Then your straighter, quicker growing stuff like um, hazel, which is your stereo archetypal coppice plant. Stuff like hazel, um, silver birch maybe, um, would be used for, um, well, hazel in particular, thatching spars, pegs for holding reed thatched onto, uh, onto roofs. Um, spokes for carts, ash, spokes for carts, axles for carts, wheels for carts, rims for carts, you know, the, 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 the rim of a, the iron um, hoop that went over the wheel of a, of, a, of a wooden cart horse wheel, a wooden cart wheel, would have been fired over 
a kiln full of uh, over a, a furnace full of um, hornbeam or oak charcoal, but the very wood that's bent to make the frame of the wheel and used for the spokes and the axle would be flexible, tenacious ash. And, and so all aspects of the wood were important. And so getting the, 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 the best productivity through coppicing or pollarding off of your land was, was the way to go at the time. And what role does it play now? <laughs> Not enough. And stuff is generally coppiced at the moment to get it out of the way of the ash trees that the greedy so-and-sos are trying to get before it loses its value to put it into a wood chip burning power station that wonderful United Kingdom has built to meet its climate change targets for 2020. Yeah, we, I mean, you guys are way ahead of us in a lot of ways on that. So, I mean, I can't, I can't judge. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, we've all got a part to play. And that has, if that's, if that's what you're saying, then fine. Then if that's where we're taking a lead and it shows it can be done, then great. But I don't think it's doing woodland management in the United Kingdom a great deal of um, good. And, and if, I suppose if it does, it will actually increase the value when we learn how to harvest it, not push it out of the way to get to the bigger, single-stemmed, more valuable stuff that goes through the chipper more easily. We will learn to harvest it. We will have to learn to use it. We'll be, hopefully, God, please, we will be forced back into the woods. Sure. No, and I, I agree. Um, and that's the thing. Like, I, I feel like if you want to learn about coppicing, there's not a like or hedge laying or any of those skills that kind of come in that same territory it's it's hard especially over here to learn anything one of the things i actually want to ask you and it's not even really a question like about your opinion but i know there's um like with coppicing there's a a, a technique of keeping like a mast tree so if you want like one larger branch or uh, shoot and then still uh, harvesting the smaller ones i know there's a term for it but i I literally cannot find it when I look. <laughs> I have noticed that very often traditional coppices will leave a stem or two per stool, stool being the, the name for the pincushion um, regrowing stump. But I'm not, I'm not aware of a word for that. I'll have to look that one up and get back to you. But it would make sense um, to encourage continuity. Of it was something I read and it was like one sentence in like a long book and I was like, huh, that's cool. And then like ever since then, I don't remember the book or like where it was and I cannot <laughs> find it. I've Googled it a million different ways. Like it's gone. I wonder, well, that's interesting because I have just funnily enough for the first time in probably 20 something years laid a holly hedge um, about 300 no, about 80 metres of it. Um, it was an interesting experience, but I was looking for what I saw on everybody's shelves 30 years ago, the hedge-laying handbook that we all used to take out to the woods with us to make sure we were getting it right, And and because um, then I was learning. And I tried to get a copy of that book because my partner hadn't laid hedges and... Um, she knows her stuff in the countryside, but I, she didn't need to listen to me when there's a perfectly good book that tells her actually how it should be done, not the way I just about remember it from 25 years ago. <laughs> and, but could I find a copy of that book? It's out of print. It's available online. 
to read on a tablet, but that's no good when I've put my sledgehammer on top of it, when I've been knocking posts in and forgotten that I've put the tablet down. So, and, and if I wanted to buy it, then I needed to probably spend over a week's worth of income Jesus. for that out-of-print version. So, and there was also a handbook on coppicing, and it could have been in there. So I will, I will have a look, because again, I imagine that the, well, actually, no, I think there were more copies of the coppicing book, but there is a, it was a series of publications, and it might be where you saw this, published by the British Trust for Conservation Volunteers, BTCV, and it's now TCV, and Training Conservation Volunteers, and it's all online. Um, but that would be the, probably the Bible of coppicing from when I was learning my agricultural skills in the woods all those years ago. And that might be where that technique was. Um, other than that, I do know a local woodman who's 83 this year, and he may well have the right story to answer that question. Yeah, and you know that's one of those things, it's like, if if no one asks that question, that knowledge can be very quickly it lost. It goes. Yeah. Yes. You know, and I think when people hear like terms like ancestral knowledge, they have like these very vague, like spiritual understandings of what that means. But it literally is like passing things down from generation to generation, like these things that we've done as humans for thousands of years. Yeah. And within the span of a hundred, we've lost so much. Yes, 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 because we can now move about and lose it behind, leave it behind, and it doesn't matter. And and that actually goes, yeah. It, it, we've lost connection to our landscape, and with that loss of connection to our landscape, is any botherment around the knowledge required to understand it. And therein lies the fundamental hurdle for all of us in the first instance is getting people back to where they should be connected with the land, where they've come from, for goodness sake. It's not very long ago that people were traveling from turnpike to turnpike and were employed with their knowledge in this country and were employed by them from another part of the world as well, even then, but they were employed for their knowledge of land management, where to put the ditches, where to put the gates, where to put the hedges, which one to lay, you know, what needed coppicing, all of that stuff. And people just, they've lost it. And I'm lucky because I seem to have been in it up to me nuts since I could bunking off school at the age of something I won't admit to, but it just, it just so we're, we're so fast. We're so quick to move on. We're so unconnected with what got us here. And it's all, it's all so important. Yeah. And part of that is really like during the last couple hundred years, you know, I think about like one of the things that's become really obvious since we started this project is that a lot of the way we live is directly tied to our food, which is directly tied to mm. our local ecology. And as we've moved across the globe, like that's not necessarily a bad thing, but we haven't fused those things together, the new landscape right. with our traditional food systems yeah. and foodways. Instead, yep. we're imprinting those foodways that we brought with us or just kind of merging them with everyone else's foodways and losing the local component of it or trying to stamp our idea of what local should be on it. And uh, it, it just fundamentally doesn't work.
yes, we've fragmented as well. Um, if you if you want to go back to the habitats that we've created over the thousands of years in this country and around the world, most recently we've developed, cut them up in fragmented stuff, disconnected it all, so that stuff can't do the migrating that you're talking about. It's going to need to do for, for, to accommodate climate change, the stuff that needs to move south, the stuff that needs to move, move north or east or west, because oh shit, it's all changed in the last 30 years. And <clears throat> we've, we've, we've moved into places and um, applied our production values without really taking stock of the landscape, because we know we can. So if the pH is wrong, we can adjust it. If the NPK is, is down, we can chuck some of that in. We can make that out of oil, which can come out of the ground. That's great, isn't it? It's again, it's the loss of connection. You know, even, even dare I say it, I'll get slammed for this, but even some farmers, not all, but some farmers just have no connection other than the produce that they're making because they've got a, a, a terrific sense of duty to feed the world, yeah. which is obese. Yeah, apparently. and that, you know, a lot of those farmers, again, the food that they're growing isn't connected to the local ecology. It's connected to domestic or international markets. The local ecology is destroyed to grow it. Yeah. Instead of <laughs> saying, okay, I've got this, uh, you know, forest that has, you know, these various nuts that are, they you know, around here, for example, um, if you look at like traditional records of uh, the colonists when they showed up, they would talk about the hickory nuts and all these other trees that drop like walnuts and, oaks and all these other you know uh, native trees and how they were just everywhere and then instead of saying huh people live off of this food we should try to integrate this into our diet instead they're gone and yeah. one of the things we see here and I'd, I'd spoken to actually alex langlands about this is that because of generational clearing of trees and things like that the larger nut trees like hickories and walnuts and you know all the chestnuts which have a whole other problem here um oh, here too. They, they've been pushed so far from like you know if there was a fire or a storm like you had said sure they might have been wiped out of uh even a 10 mile space or even a 100 mile space but now we're talking hundreds and hundreds of miles for those nuts to try to travel mm. and it's just it's not possible and then you mix in climate change and invasive species and it's like these forests get trapped in this static succession of where they make no progress. And unfortunately for us, it's been primarily low productive forests. So it's primarily pines that don't have many nuts and things like that. So it's not even feeding the landscape. Is that something you guys are seeing a lot of or? I think the focus on timber harvesting at the moment in this, certainly in this part of the world is, is, is around you mentioned sweet chestnut disease we've we've got the ash tree um which interestingly did very well after the 1987 storm that i talked about earlier because it's um unlike the the, the falling seeds that you're talking about that either need a vector like you and me to carry them around and drop them somewhere and forget we put them there or or, or a jay for example in the case of the oak tree and an acorn but the ash tree's got windblown seeds and it did very very well after the 87 storm and um That is tending to me to, to be the main focus of everybody's activity at the moment because 
I suppose, A, the, the, there's the greed thing. There's the, got to get the value out of it while it's still got the calories and it's not starting to rot. But also, if it starts falling over, there's the public health and safety side of stuff, but also the damage to the trees that you're talking about, such as the more valuable oak, that might actually be getting somewhere now after the 1987 storm. And, and you know, 35-year-old oak trees are starting to look quite respectable, um, but they won't be harvested for another, I've got to hope, at least... 50 years um or even 100 but but um and and and, and there's building damage health and safety but also other other crops will be damaged I, I guess perceivably by ash falling over because there is that much self-sown ash in this this country the the oak the, the seed the, the the heavier our sweet chestnut is native um i've got a pal who's proved it and we will have moved that about a little bit. Other wildlife will have moved that out about a little bit. We've also planted it as a coppice, um, productive coppice plant anyway. So I don't see any natural real processes that you're talking about being, you know, there's, there's, Generally, it would be if 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 there's if there's some kind of the equivalent, I suppose, would be an oak woodland or a, or a semi-natural uh, woodland with oak and ash and, and beech and various hornbeam and, and willow and oh, I could go on. But if if that was clear felled to go planting some kind of non-native softwood in this day and age, it'd be very very disappointing. But we are suffering that kind of impact post-war where we had no ground with trees on it because we knocked it all over for the war efforts and we had to plant something quick and dirty um, and not necessarily in the right places because we didn't really know what we were doing because we'd lost all that experience because a lot of them didn't come back. And that is part of the decline of the link that you talked about earlier, we talked about earlier with, with us and connectivity of the land is, is, that, is that the wars a lot of the land workers didn't come back and um, all of the woodland went over to fuel the war. And then perhaps we didn't really know what we were doing with forestry after that for a wee while and therefore planted all sorts of things to keep our options open. And in some cases, those options failed because we planted them in the wrong place because the knowledge hadn't come back from the war. Sure. Um, I could see it in the holly hedge we were laying, where the first war had impacted. It had been planted in the mid-1800s. And if the hedge isn't maintained every year, it starts to get away. And if the boys don't, girls, don't come back after the first war, and it hasn't been maintained during it. And it's the same with woodland. We clear found a load of woodland. And, and, and so we're not, we're not, we're not in the same state of, 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 disconnect that you're talking about in that way but what we are doing is disconnecting woodlands and fragmenting habitats in general and not allowing stuff to move through corridors to get between the different habitats along with woodland um yeah we we need we need corridors for wildlife between even the smallest isolated fragments of woodland yeah that's one of those things i feel like it's so important and it also is like something that i think gets a lot of support the the concept of it because i think it's like 
as much of a novelty as it needs to be in order to get people to be like, oh yeah, that's a cool, interesting way to not make significant changes to the way we live uh, while also providing, an, a, you know, there's a, a large cost benefit for something like that versus alternatives to um, wildlife protection. It's more proactive. It's less responsive. It's, it's, it's wherever we are in the world, we've overimposed ourselves on it. We take too big a part in it, in a landscape scale for the natural world to cope with us. We are not designed like Swifts to fly from Africa to the United Kingdom to breed for three months, feed off our insects and go back again. That's not what we're supposed to do. It doesn't change the fact that we've done it. It doesn't change the fact that Swifts have declined 50% in the last, I think, 20 years in this country, or 50, what's the statistic? 50% in the last 20 years. And that there is something that's clearly being impacted by our impact on the landscape, our impact with development, our impact with the climate. And we don't know why. The only thing we are sure about is we're not providing for them in developments in the way that we should be. Sure. And that we've insulated them out of their breeding places that have managed to keep up with us since they've had caves that we were dwelling in <laughs> that yeah. they associate quite happily with us. And and so I I I we have to we have to we have to in a, in a global way we have to we have to think about connectivity and, and and what it is that is between here and Africa that's getting in their way or what it is when they get to Africa that means that they can't come back along you know because it's only it's Yes, obviously we're impacting them with the breeding, but there's others with the, the lack of breeding opportunities in this country because we're building them out by sealing up gaps and nooks and crannies. But what else is going on between here and there? And we really don't know yet. And so that connectivity on a global scale is much more important than we ever, ever understand it. You know, the, the, the nightjar, for example, another swift that flies here also from Africa to lay eggs, a couple of eggs on the ground. And 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 it, it's got a you know it's a really unique habitat requirement, and it uses this country to exercise it, and and then it goes back. You know, well, that's surely that's much more important than reintroducing beavers, but we don't really understand <laughs> them anyway. Yeah, you know, it's just. But so yeah, on a, on a on a global, we really 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 need to think bigger on a on a bigger global worldwide landscape scale about our imprint. I mean, it's it's all very well me talking about this, and then someone will have a prop back about world poverty and and people need feeding. Well, the fact is, there's too many of us. It's just it's just that for the ecology people, that we've it's created. All about people. Sorry, I said for the ecology we've created. Absolutely, yes. we are yes, probably exactly. pushing yeah, the carrying capacity. Yes. We've shoved it into corners and expanded into the vast expanses of landscape that they previously occupied. Yeah, we've put pavement over the richest soils in the world, and then we're surprised that food systems and ecological systems are starting to fall apart. And we build in floodplains and wonder why they don't last very long. So I, I've got to ask, um, well, two questions. So one thing I've been thinking about is around this idea of like, you know, we're talking about getting humans back in nature. Mm. And um, one of the things I, we did an episode on the 
Japanese Satayama farms or Satayama, Satayama landscape, uh, which if you're not familiar with is essentially a, a similar, you know, coppicing type model around riverbeds and things like that. Yes, I have seen that. Um, Yes. with like the, the um, rice paddies and things like that. And what they've done in the last 30 or 40 years is try to um, do a big PR outreach into communities to get people out into the landscapes um, to do those traditional pr uh, practices and manage the landscapes because all those unique species that could only survive after thousands of years couldn't survive when the landscapes were let go. They needed those unique conditions to survive. But what they found was they, while species, that species diversity slowed down shrinking, it didn't really stop. And what that kind of said to me when I, when I was uh, reading this was that I think that we need to have a more, it's not about going through the motions. We actually have to have that connection to the landscape. Otherwise, it's, it doesn't fully get the value for the ecology or us. Uh, and I was kind of curious about your thoughts about that. We do need to find a way of getting people to understand the values that they still have that connect them with the landscape. And there are wood burners being fitted hand over fist, left, right and centre in this country without people really realising that the cost of wood goes up at the same rate as the cost of gas and electricity. So it isn't any cheaper unless you grow your own. But they don't care where the wood comes from. They don't give a stuff if it's come from a garden centre in a polythene bag produced in inverted commas sustainably in a wooded in Norway, only to see that it's silver birch, which grows here anyway. Why, why, is, why is that being shipped? We need to, we need to really the, the go the, the local thing, connecting people with local environments, you know, the whole firewood thing, taking wood from one part of the country to, to run a a wood chip boiler on the other side doesn't make sense. Why aren't they growing it in Kent? Because the wood isn't there. It's as simple as that. It's got to come from everywhere else. And getting people sitting in front of the fire is, a, is, is like sitting on the beach, sitting by the river, going for a walk in the countryside, going for a walk in the woods, camping, a bit like a cave. All of those things are, are, are still in us. But because... We don't have to split the wood and we can write a check for it or we can turn the thermostat on the central heating we've lost it and 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 i think with climate change and the climate agenda finally getting out where it needs to be a little bit late people are going to have to be helped to reconnect to enable them to understand that they can't have the impact that we've had so far through the lifestyles they've led you know, uh, I'd love to see how much better the environment is statistically with gases and, uh, and, 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 and pollution with regard to the, in relation to the lack of air travel, in, in relation to the reduced fossil fuel car-based, lorry-based travel to, to do with all the lockdowns and, and the worldwide. So, yeah, I, there was talk in the first early stages of COVID about the massive positive impact on the environment of it all. And then we very quickly refocused on the number of people that are dying. Well, <laughs> how many people will be dying if that rate of environmental catastrophe continues? Yeah. It'll be a bit of a different statistic then because it won't happen 
bit by bit as we give it to each other, it will happen en masse, catastrophically, because there's a horrid event, like a big sea wave, big wave, or a, a big wind, or a big heat, or a big cold, or a big wet. You know, that's what's going to do for us somewhere. We're already seeing it, if we think about it. Yeah, and like right now, as we're filming Washington State, which I'm sure you don't know the local climate of it, but it's generally a coolish area that's like cool tropical it's very steady rarely you know stays within about 50 degrees year round right now it's 116 degrees uh they're just getting pummeled like smashing every record not for the day but ever and not even like oh it's a degree warmer than it's ever been like by like 10 degrees uh it's just like totally unreal that's something that people need to realize this is the new normal and even if we <laughs> stop burning fuels today that's it's going to take decades a generation at least to um start to feel like things are stopping getting worse yeah it worries me that in my 50 years i've seen changes it really that's that's mm, planted trees is easy until they start getting old and 30 years they look like trees and you realize you've been around for a while having kids is another thing having kids is another thing because they get old with you and you don't really notice it but Climate change is fucking frightening, frankly. Yeah. Because I can see it. And I think when I was at school, we were supposed to be going into another glaciation. We were supposed to be going into another ice age period. That's what I was being taught. I mean, technically we are, just <laughs> we're offsetting it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's not its not even been mentioned, has it? No. I haven't heard that mentioned for 40 years. Yeah, the only people that talk about it are the climate change deniers that say, well, scientists said 40 years ago that this is going to happen, and instead now it's heat instead. And it's like, well, if you spent more than five seconds reading what they said, you would understand that that's a bigger alarm. <laughs> not You're not no. making the point you're thinking. Okay, and I can't sit. That's my point. And I can't. I cannot sit here and be a denier because because I, I am of an age where I can see the changes. You know, the seasonality is completely feels completely different. Um, wind direction is different at different times of the year, and, 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 and yeah, it's it's worrying. But I, I'm and then being able to look at it another way. I'm glad that I am the age I am because I might not make another forty years to see the next forty around the changes. What's it going to be like? Yeah, we've only got 10 years to make a difference to the next 30 is what we're being told at the moment. Well, it's not looking good. Yeah, it's not. No, it's it's very, very frightening. And I know from, crikey, 15 years ago when I was um, maybe 20, 25 years ago, I don't want to go into the coast stuff now, but when I was learning about climate change figures and the impact on, on sea level rise, Never mind the impacts of plate tectonic settling, <laughs> but the impacts of sea level rise on, on the UK coastline were being talked about in uh, maybe six to nine millimetres a year. But that's because that's all we could actually perceivably accept. That was, that was what was deemed to be a figure that might actually be believed. The real figures, I was being told, Mark, you don't want to know the real figures. I've just seen the latest prediction and it knocks all that into a cocked hat. Never mind nine millimetres. It could be twice that if this rate of expansion continues. And I'm talking 10 plus 15 plus years ago, people, you know, national advisors were telling me this kind of stuff. And they were too scared to tell us the truth. 
okay so we'll let them feel the truth then and now we are feeling the truth and i can understand where the kids are coming from i can understand where the kids are coming from because it's quite apparent that we've done nothing about it till it's nearly too late and now we're saying it's nearly too late we need to do something about it <laughs> could be my motto but <laughs> but not when it comes to climate and ecology you know that's more important than me i don't really figure how anybody can sit where they are and not notice what's going on around them at the moment it's worrying very worrying never mind bloody covid yeah so you brought up you know these these kids so i, <laughs> I have to ask do you in your work do you feel like you're seeing a lot of uh younger people getting interested in this kind of stuff um not even like necessarily the climate change but more of these like hands-on type experiential skills we'll call them getting back into the land yeah getting 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 back in the well <laughs> we've mechanized it all haven't we they are still there there are still people that want to get their hands dirty um it's the product is still the, the woodland product is still undervalued for what it actually is for the amount of effort that's put in to get it out and so the wages for forest workers aren't great um and i mean the thing we're communicating on is what dominates the youngsters world these days isn't it so it's and that's exacerbated by our own human nature and improvement and, and and um and so on and so forth but i don't see no i don't see it i don't see it at all the 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 agricultural colleges that were running conservation-based courses or countryside management-based courses or forestry-based courses they're they're fewer and fewer decade by decade if not year on year yeah and um 30 something years ago i had a range of places i could choose to go to to study uh and 30 years 30 plus years ago it involved getting my hands dirty but now the emphasis on is on, on academia and 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 learning what you need to learn up there but not about with your hands and so people aren't in the woods learning like they used to no they're not um they're few and far between and sure i don't think many people in the agricultural or forestry industry would say that they would want their children to follow their footsteps in fact i know farmers that call themselves developers now yeah i mean i the it, it speaks of fundamental problems in our economic system that the things that make us human are no longer affordable to do and that that should give people pause about whether or not this works this meaning like the way we've lived for the last x years it's uh sobering it's a it's a shame there are there are people out there that want to do it but we don't place enough emphasis on the on the on the need for environmental benefit out of the landscape and the habitats that we live and work in around and, and um you know I, i've got a very good friend um who lives and breathes woodland and and makes her own charcoal and sells that and makes some sort of subsistence from the charcoal but also keeps keeps herself going with and her family with with um with forest school leadership she runs forest schools five days a week in educa local education establishments she's connected she's connected but she really struggles she really struggles to make it pay because partly because of the scale of her ownership but partly because people really don't want to pay the same for her charcoal 
as they'll pay for something that's come in a container ship across the Atlantic or the Baltic or whatever. You know, yeah. it, it, it's, they just don't, well, surely it doesn't cost you as much as it does to put it on a, on a, on a container ship and bring it all the way over here. Well, why do you think they're bringing it here in the first place? <laughs> they're not volunteering to give you charcoal, are they? Yeah. You know, the, the stuff's there. It's growing in our woodland, waiting for someone to make charcoal out of it. The very hazel would have been used for charcoal. She's making lovely charcoal out of it. You go into a garden centre, you tell me how many garden centres are stocking, how many supermarkets are stopping UK-based charcoal. We shouldn't even be allowing it to be burning heavy oil to get across the sea to be put in our barbecues. Yeah. Yeah. Ridiculous. It's true. It's um, <laughs> it's one of those things like, you know, why does a McDonald's burger that is grown in, you know, Brazil or wherever get packaged, shipped across the world and it costs a dollar while, you know, the local farm next door, that burger is like six bucks and they're also still poor. It, yeah. You know, it speaks of fundamental fa- uh, flaws in our entire eco- uh, economic system. Yes. yes. This has been a fun conversation. Mark, do you have any... Um, for folks that are interested, do you have some place that you post yeah, work or a, a company <laughs> or a, anything interesting that people might want to check out if they want to learn more? Well, uh, not yet. No, uh, because I, I might, I might have by now if I had a bit more confidence in this area. But I actually withdrew myself from Facebook activity <laughs> at the start of the first lockdown because I felt that I might present something to the wider public that they might find unacceptable. And I might let myself down by saying something I regretted because one of the things that couples with um, what we're talking about is the selfish human natural behavior that we all seem to be struggling with at the moment on a worldwide scale. And I felt that if I was in the public domain, I'd want to have a pop at my fellow human race because frankly, the way we're behaving towards each other and the planet is disgusting. I can't believe it. It doesn't make sense. Whose interest is this in? It's not going to do us any good, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it just so so unfortunately, no, I don't. I, I I did I I did start to put some stuff up and and um I, I, I will have a bit of a thing, and when I do it, it'll be called Make It Wild, um, because that's what I'm about. Uh, but no, I don't have a presence like I should. And my 25-year-old son has had a little fiddle with it, and we need to do some more. But right now, it's not the most important thing I've got to do. Sure. Well, if you change <laughs> your mind. Both, well, let, let's see. Let's. I might, I might be prompted by this chat, might I not? Let's yeah. see. <laughs> uh, you know, I, so I, I don't know if you uh, spend any time on Instagram, but it's a, in a lot of ways, uh, it's a really fun way to see just people doing the work because yeah. I think for a lot of folks, especially like me, I, I can't go drive down the road and find somebody even within 50 miles that is doing stuff like coppicing. And, and just like, you know, trying, like I said, trying to find somebody that can be like, hey, this is how you do it. This is what you're seeing here. That doesn't exist. So th- there's a lot of opportunity out there. And I personally would love to see some of that type of stuff. So that's okay. that's my endorsement. And uh, if you change, if you change your mind, let me know, and I will make sure to put a link at the bottom of the uh, episode description. All right, cool. Well, I'll, um, I'm, I'm under, I'm under. <laughs> My partner Charlotte, she, she's 
um, been very good, and she's posted some stuff on Facebook, and it's been followed, and it's it's got around a little bit. And um, you probably picked up the hedgeling tag um, that she may have put on, and and, and it is it is making me think it's probably about time I did start um, growing up and doing it. There you go. <laughs> but it's just the. <laughs> It's just the technophobia in me. You know, I'm a man of tools, not keyboards. It's... No, I, I hear you. When uh, we started this podcast, I was like, wait, I have to do what now? I have, I have to do what? Like, just let me be in the woods and, like, talk about stuff. Like, I don't, I don't want to do the tech part of it. But, it, you know, you, you figure it out. Yeah, I, I guess if, if you prick my conscience, because I probably should, uh, given what you just said, uh, I am very lucky. I am very lucky. Um, I'm very lucky to be able to have gainful employment outside in the environment um, in the way I want, I suppose, to be able to go coppicing when I want to and say, yes, I'd love to lay that hedge and be paid for it. Um, but I have to mix it up with all the other stuff because there's not enough around to make it sustainable. You could spend all day, every day, on a chainsaw, head down, arse up, coppicing or felling or climbing trees and doing our boulder culture. I'm 50 for crying out loud. I haven't got that in me anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I'm catching <laughs> so, up to you, so I know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> so doing a bit more of that on, on this kind of media might actually be something that um, makes up for the lack of hands-on sure. um, impact. So, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, I admire what you're doing. Um, and, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm following. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right, well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, too. As always, if you enjoyed this interview, please give us a review on iTunes and tell your friends. This is how we grow, and it's been really great to see how things have moved forward for us. Further, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook, where we post similar content, so go check us out over there. Until next time, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac. Poor Proles Almanac.